Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle where today we're going to be talking about something called the politics of psychology. We're going to be talking about how the authorities and particularly in our case prevent, how they aim to predict who is going to commit the next terrorist attack and how to hold them to account before they have committed anything. The impact of this on the community is absolutely significant and with us today is going to be Dr. Tarek Yunus who's a senior lecturer of psychology at Middlesex University. Enjoy! The question that uh, I wanted to start off with is the question about a phrase that uh, you use in your research, in your papers, and that is the politics of psychology. That's something that I have to say, I have to admit, I, when, I, when I read that, that, that's the very first, you know, I regard myself as, as someone who is well read on politics. You know, I'm even a practitioner of politics, but politics of psychology, I try to figure out exactly what that means. Yeah. But what does that mean? Okay, inshallah. Um, so I think the politics of psychology lends itself to uh, various different traditions of critique not necessarily only of social sciences, but also of medicine, as it relates to statecraft. To think that any, um, any field, be it psychiatry, be it sociology, be it psychology or apolitical, is in fact often reinforcing status quo thinking of what these disciplines are, are doing in practice. So <clears throat> there's a long history of thinking already critically of psychology, how it developed as a field, and it's important here to emphasize that psychology and psychiatry, this, what we call, what I'll call the side disciplines, have very contentious histories. They have very uncertain histories, where they come from, and also how they came to be in terms of the relationship to statecraft, to um, questions of managing populations, understanding what is wellness, what is illness, how do we define what it is, where it comes from, so there's a lot of different trajectories we can approach that from. Um, there's obviously, we can think about its Eurocentricism and how psychology is related, let's say, to, I mean, very obvious notions of capitalism and issues of mental health being related to productivity. And often, you know, questions of people feeling like they're no longer productive is one way of sort of recognizing that there's something wrong in terms of their well-being. Um, and so I think that's often probably the most recognizable critique of the side disciplines. But it, I think there's a very, or we, we are beginning, right? I wasn't sure. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, there's um, one element I think is very important to Muslims. Um, and here we could draw on a trajectory of how it relates to marginalized populations. So the side disciplines have very... Um, well-documented histories in terms of colonial, in terms of colonial projects and the way they were implemented in terms of surveillance and the management of colonized populations. That's well known. What's also well known is how these side disciplines were also implemented, let's say during the civil rights era. You know, there is a political utility to diagnosis. Besides what we think is this very um, benevolent purpose of trying to help people, there was always, there's always a political utility. Um, one political utility to diagnosis, especially during the civil rights movement, when many in the black community wanted to arm themselves, to protect themselves. A diagnosis was used to be able to prevent 
people from being able to purchase a weapon. There's obviously discussions about Soviet Union and the way political dissent was pathologized. And I draw on these different histories to understand how that's particular for us, for Muslims in, in the moment. And so if I think these are best illustrated with examples. The one example I give here, for example, is there's a prevent policy. Uh, and for people who don't know, prevent is a policy in which people uh, or in which public bodies have a duty to identify and report individuals they suspect might have some sort of what they call it pre-crime, some sort of tendency or vulnerability to become radicalized. Um, the is, is that according to prevent or the authorities in prevent? Is that something that is within the DNA or is that something that has been planted um, during the course of this person's education or upbringing or whatever? Yeah. So you mean the way prevent might frame Yeah, I mean, why, why would they think that a, a certain person has the tendency of, you know, or, or that kind of pre-crime uh, analysis that that person might be someone whom they want to take interest in? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So certainly there's an element of racism that has to be um, flagged here. Um, it's not very different to trying to understand why in London, through stop and search policies, um, a police are much more likely to stop and search 30, 30 times more likely, actually, in fact, to stop and search a black youth vis-a-vis -a, -vis a white youth, right? So when we're asking ourselves, what are sort of the indications that someone has that might make them susceptible to being viewed as a potential threat in the future, there's a point where it doesn't matter what someone says or does, the very, their very bodies alone will speak something. There's some sort of symbolic value to their bodies. Is, is this somehow related to profiling? Yes, absolutely. It is. It is profiling. It is profiling. It is 100% profiling. Um, but I think it also belongs, this idea of profiling, I think sometimes can be used as thinking of it as a form of strategy. But I don't think this is a strategy that's encoded explicitly, right? It's the same way that police aren't told, go look out for black youth. It's the fact that the very association between blackness and violence is is something that is um, is prevalent in public consciousness. And that same sort of affiliation, or what I call racialization, Muslims are racialized in different ways. But obviously, one of the main points of racialization in the war on terror is that Muslims are racialized as threat or as potential um, risks within a logic of national security. And so that's why people who aren't even Muslims, that's how we know someone who might be Sikh. We've seen this in movies. There's uh, a movie called Inside Man in which a Sikh person has his uh, turban removed and considered a terrorist. These sort of ways are, these are sort of things that respond back to that question. If the person themselves, if they identify as Muslim is even relevant or not to the process of racialization, and that's, that's a simple answer, no. Right. So even for prevent, it actually becomes irrelevant. And I have one case example. I haven't been, I haven't unpacked it in my research because um, I'm only allowed to sort of share the tidbit itself. And the tidbit is there was one person in the NHS that was referred through prevent because they came from Syria 
but they weren't even Muslim. So a prevent referral was made of them, given the sort of racialization of as Arab, they were, they were, they were Christian. And it speaks volumes to how complicated this process of racialization actually so is. So if, if we were, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because there are so many layers that you could uh, discuss. And there are so many questions. I mean, almost every single sentence you spoke there brings up an array of questions. But the question that really, uh, you know, is, is, is prevalent right now in my mind is leave aside, let's say, the ill effects. We're going to come to those of profiling, of prevent tactics and the such. How successful? I mean, what are we talking about in terms of success rates of this particular method? I mean, does it work? Because, I mean, regardless, it, we'll talk about the efficacy. We'll talk about, you know, good or bad later on. We'll discuss this. We might have already come to a judgment regarding whether it's good or bad. But the question is, does it work? That's a great question. Um, and probably the best place to begin. Prevent is notoriously known to not work. Um, this is not something that's coming from me. Uh, the recent review of Prevent Shawcross made the same observation, right? Um, and so there's a point in which prevent, Shawcross's argument comes from a place that's very problematic. His point is that prevent is clearly becoming one of, of it, it's losing its central focus on Muslims and its efficacy on would increase if it focused on Muslims more and if it managed also Islam more directly. So he's looking towards France, he's looking towards other countries, and he's recommending that we emulate them. I mean, Prevent has been a failure on many different levels besides its racism, <laughs> but I mean, one can also very clearly see in many of the attacks, people who were previously referred to Prevent, its idea of de-radicalization is ad hoc, its way of, of funding is completely ad hoc. So it's been something, the way I, when I teach on it, I make that distinction between evidence-based policy and politics-based evidence. And PREVENT is a very clear example, and it, it, this, the, this idea doesn't come from PREVENT, so people have discussed this in relation to other sort of policies, whereby there was a sort of, there was a sort of movement from above. Someone decided, we need to have this policy. There's no evidence for it, right? Actually, as I've argued previous to this, there was already evidence to show that Muslims were very good at self-policing. Muslims were very good at when they, recognize an issue in the community you know they would develop that sort of you know that awareness yeah and the mechanism be... of addressing that exactly it was something that was already well established the process of securitization what i call something like prevent what it actually in fact does is that it completely destabilizes and in fact it perverts the 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 central element which is trust i mean for any system to actually function it has to require that trust Otherwise, it's one that's based on surveillance and risk logics in which we can never trust each other. So we have to know as much as about, we, we need to know as much of each other as possible, right? Um, and so it certainly hasn't worked on many different levels. And I think, unfortunately, um, I think I would like to emphasize that I think one of the biggest problems with prevent why it hasn't worked um, is that 
it took a colorblind approach eventually because of its accusations of racism and Islamophobia. If you recall that example, I said that police aren't told to go out and look for black youth. Prevent, in effect, tried to become colorblind, but not in its own essence addressing why counterterrorism policies and strategies, when they're embedded within public bodies, become racist in impact. Um, and so, yeah, I think this may be a long-winded <laughs> yeah. answer to why, how it's going to relate to psychology, but I can still but, get but to that if you watch. I mean, it's extremely fascinating, particularly your take on mental health and how that um, has quite an, an, an impact on uh, counterterrorism strategies, on approaches and methods and the such. Yeah. And this is something that we don't think of. I mean, from my end, at least, I mean, I, I deal with the, the hows and the whys and the outcomes, but you're going into some, something which is quite profound. You're going into the DNA of the decision-making process. And that is something which is, uh, on one hand, quite impressive, but on, on another, it's quite worrying as well, because it's something that most people don't understand. What is the relationship between this approach to trying to suss out potential, I mean, you know, we've, we've, we've seen films whereby, you know, the hero looks into the future and predicts uh, a crime and, and stops it before it, uh, it is committed. Tom Cruise, not just any hero. I, I, Tom, I, Cruise. Tom Cruise, yeah. yes, yeah, absolutely <laughs> right. My apologies. Um, and, but, but we are virtually there. I mean, this is what we're talking about, aren't we? We're talking about the authorities who have the capacity, who have the jurisdiction, <clears throat> pointing out who it is that might commit a crime which is seen as within the realms of terrorism or the such. This is crazy. It is. I mean, I think it goes, just goes to show how much policies itself are implicated within these broader movements and associations from, I call it from above, right? From those in power. I mean, we think about neoconservative think tanks like the Henry Jackson Society and others. And I think people tend to think that politics is this sort of fluid democratic process, which is certainly um, <laughs> no longer the case, I think, for the, I think the public. I don't think anyone believes that anymore. But I think there's also an implication for me personally, I think, for many Muslims who enter into higher education or education in general, for them to think that medicine as a field is apolitical or that healthcare is an apolitical space. Um, that's often been my biggest contention, especially among Muslims. Um, you know, there's still a great sort of support and, and push for Muslims to, you know, what, what, what I guess what we believe will be some form of change in maybe Islamophobia, if, many, if more and more Muslims achieve the sort of social mobility, they call it, right? We, we, we achieve this middle-class status. We become more doctors, more engineers. So I already have a problem with that strategy, but I think from within this idea that these are all sort of apolitical fields, especially healthcare, I think has been a, a big blind spot for us. I mean, we have, there's a lot of rich traditions in sociology of healthcare, understandings of illness, and, and, you know, and these things have been written about in volumes and volumes, and it's not something that we've really been able to articulate for ourselves why that's important. Um, 
And I, I think it's more and more important, in fact. Um, Prevent is actually a good example of that because Prevent is highly psychologized and it speaks to people who are emotionally vulnerable. I give the, in, in my book, I give the example of Khalid who um, had this deep love and desire for the people of Syria. And he wanted to help them. He wanted to help them, so I think he made some sort of he made some sort of transfer of money yeah. over there to help, and then that was like potentially accused of like potential terrorism. That case dropped, so his, the the whole terrorism charge against him dropped, but he still had a probation officer, and the probation officer, and this is really important in the report, the probation officer felt that because Khalid still has this these strong emotions towards what's happening towards other people in, in Syria, um, that he's potentially almost always at risk of radicalization. Um, and so you can see here how certain emotions are pathologized of certain people, but that pathology, because they are those people, is also directly securitized. We've seen this also for Palestine. People, we know um, there's, there's these, uh, in schools, students who might act out. Yes. There's, there's a lot of ra racism already written in, in sort of the fine print of how certain kids are seen as acting out while other kids might be expressing their opinions, etc. Um, but we know of examples in which people might have very legitimate forms of distress, experience of the distress. But because that's not recognized as a legitimate form of distress, what ends up happening is pathologized. So I actually, maybe I'll, I'll give a really important example that I like to emphasize. Uh, I have to explain one thing before that. One of the under, underground or undercover developments that happen through Prevent are things called mental health hubs. Mental health hubs were initially being rolled out as trials by, it's an unprecedented relationship between police and healthcare. So it's co-funded by police and NHS. And they were tr doing trials in the South and Midlands and in the North of England. Um, and basically anyone who's being referred to for prevent or anyone who was deemed, remember there's a racism in, embedded in those referrals, was was actually being was receiving a mental health assessment, so that's really important. So let's take now a thousand people, a thousand youth, and the reason why I say a thousand youth is because we, um, and by we I mean um, Hill Akkad of MedAct, FOI did a freedom of inform information request and got the police reports, and so we're now reading the police reports and we find that most of the referrals to these mental health hubs are young, Asian youth. So let's say sixteen. Uh, around the age of 16, a thousand of them are referred. And now we don't know why they're being referred. They're just, they've been, they, they've been seen as potentially at risk of radicalization and terrorism. Now, mental health assessments are being done of them, which has its own sort of ethical questions. But the police are now sitting with all this data and they're looking at the mental health assessments of um, all these youth. And you, so you have all these, you have this graph with all these bars. And so you'll see that, oh, there's high levels of, um, let's say there's medium levels of trauma, and, but there's high levels of emotional and behavioral dysfunction, and there's low levels of psychosis. 
and there's very low levels of distress. And this is something that I unpack because what's very significant here is this relationship between emotional behavioral dysfunction as a way of categorizing someone who's acting out. Let's say a youth who's very angry and upset. Something is touching them about what they're seeing in the world. And it matters to them, maybe not in a logic that might matter to the teacher. Maybe the teacher is thinking very locally. The youth is thinking maybe globally in a way that the teacher is asking themselves, well, why are you so angry and upset about what's happening on the other side of the world? The police themselves, whoever wrote that report, makes such a revealing remark. They themselves note that they say, it's very fascinating that the stress is so low. It seems that bar of distress was very low. It seems that potentially what's happening is that people who are distressed are being pathologized. They're being given a diagnosis in, uh, in, another, in another category. I think emotional dysfunction is a good example, right? What's the difference between someone who's angry about a legitimate cause and someone who's angry because their cause is illeg illegitimate? And here we see the politics of psychology, what it's able to do. Psychology has a very powerful depoliticizing impulse. When I, when I see you and you're angry and I say, oh, Dr. Anas has a, a problem with anger, has a personal problem with anger. It's a way of individualizing that towards you, depoliticizing it from your circumstances and making it a question of your own re rehabilitation rather than making it a question of, well, maybe you're in a situation where you have a right and that anger is a form of expression. It's legitimate and it's, and it's pointing towards a wider, a wider context. And so I think this is something that we as well in the community, we fall into that very quickly. I, I think it's important, especially for Muslims, to have, I know there's many who kind of espouse and are trying to promote a mental health framework. And I'm, I'm very uh, happy and I'm very encouraging of this, but I think we need to understand and temper what all of this means. And we can't think that just simply having this sort of benevolent view that if everyone had a psychiatrist or a psychologist in the Muslim everything community, okay. everything would be okay. Quite the contrary. What we're seeing is that, in fact, it might very well lead to a place where we're policing ourselves um, through a different language. So in a way, we're talking about something that's been problematized. It's not necessarily a problem per se, because many of the reactions you spoke about are quite normal reactions. I mean, you'd expect those reactions. In fact, on many occasions, you'd assume that the, the absence of those reactions is in itself telling yeah. and problematic. Yes. So, so the issue is problematizing something which is quite inherently normal and uh, within the intrinsic behavior of, of normal human beings. But yet the impact is so so um, quite significant, so dramatic. I mean, I was involved in a case um, in a local primary school where one of the children um, was drawing a map of Palestine. And all of a sudden, this became an issue. The parents were called in. The social carer was, was called in. Um, the head teacher was one step away from calling the police. And all of this because uh, during 
drawing lessons, the child who was around eight years old draw a map of Palestine. And yes, during that time, there, Palestine was all over the news. Yes, um, his parents were watching things unfold in in Palestine, uh, you know, hour, hour, hour after hour. But the the way in which now we're presenting these cases as anomalies is in itself uh, quite quite problematic. And the thing is that I mean, what you're talking about is something which is extremely complex extremely sophisticated and beyond the realms of, of understanding of the vast majority, I would include the parents. They wouldn't understand all of this, especially if it was given to them in the same kind of vernacular. So they would be unable to respond intelligently or legibly to why it is that their child, for instance, is driven to draw a map of Palestine. But the issue of mental health, I'd like to touch on, on this a little bit, because one of the quite deeply seated convictions of, uh, of many within the Muslim community is that um, any act that is committed by a Muslim is seen as a criminal act when a non-Muslim commits probably the same or even a more you know, expansive attack or the such, it's always down to mental health. It's always down to mental health. Now, I'm not sure whether statistics, whether they, they, they add up and they prove that that is correct. I do know that on many occasions I've read about an attack on, for instance, a church attended by African-Americans, um, by someone who has uh, clearly spoken of racist beliefs and convictions, um, and many people are killed, and yet the word terrorism is nowhere to be found within that kind of description. Um, the attacks by by certain supporters of a particular president mowing down protesters uh, in in an American city, for instance, that is nowhere near, you know, terrorism, for instance. It's always down to mental health. It's always down to the fact that these people, they were abused when they were little. They were uh, exposed to some one thing or another. And yes, it does draw up um, frustration. The fact is, I would, once again, going back, leaving aside all politics, leaving aside all our prejudices, many created as a result of the past you know, 10, 20 years that we've been living through, but I would suggest that any crime committed is a manifestation of some sort of mental health. And when it's driven, let's say, by political reasons or the such, then it's, it has its own you know, categorization of mental health issues that have driven this person to harm others for something that won't be achieved through this means. I mean, ultimately, you're pursuing something that won't be achieved through this means. If anything, it's the reverse that will will be had. I don't know whether I'm making my point clear, but you but, are. The, but the but the point of mental health is something that we're now coming to grips with. It seems that authorities, and particularly within the counterterrorism sphere, have been far way ahead of the game in terms of you know trying to outline exactly what this has and how it carries and the such. 
uh, and we're only now coming to grips with with all of this. And and therefore, whenever giving advice to parents who might be hauled before head teachers and social um, workers and the such because their their child spoke something or said something or expressed something or drew something, um, how do they respond to this? So I think you raise several really important yes. points. <laughs> yes, several. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to try to take them in the order that you said them. Um, but I think overall, I think there's something to be said about why why Muslims are being impacted that way, let's say through counterterrorism. I think there's something very important here. Um, and the second point I think we'll talk about is mental health the solution to this, right? Okay. So as for the first, I think this has been a long-standing criticism of terrorism as a construct, as other as others have argued, also as well as here in the UK, uh, Max Hill I think has famously argued argued this as well. Uh, he was an independent terrorism uh, reviewer that criminal law is sufficient for crimes, right? So terrorism brings in a different sense of logic of who is whose violence is politically motivated. So I mean, if we don't, we don't have to en- engage in conversations like or not. We don't have to like analyze this or unpack it. I think most people listening can understand that something about terrorism has to do with this relationship between violence and politics and some sort of political ambition. And one of the major critiques of it is actually really quite simple. That if you think about racism, racist attacks. I mean, every racist attack, technically by definition, is ideologically motivated. Yep. And is violent. Absolutely. Right? I was attacked when I lived in Germany and grew up in Berlin. I was attacked on the street. And the person was attacking me and he was spitting at me and he was saying, du bist dreck. He was saying, like, you're, you're dirt. Get out of my country. You're dirt. Right? So the ideology is clear. One that we can also chart its history. Where is that coming from? It's not some random event. And it's violent. Right? I think today they might call that lone wolf, but the problem is here is that regressively they might then, every, every attack then suddenly becomes a, a terrorism attack, right? What we know in that distinction between, oh, white people have like a mental health issue. Uh, you said non-Muslims, it's actually white people because I think we can make the argument that for other racialized minorities, it's also often not seen as um, mental health. But for people who are racialized as white, it's seen as a mental health issue, I think is just recognizable from the very problem with the idea of terrorism is that it's inherently racist from its outset as, a, as an idea whose violence is considered political is, is one that privileges a white person immediately. Their violence is immediately always privileged as non-political. And there's a lot of ways we can explain that, right? The only times it becomes very explicitly associated with politics and, or political motivations is often when they're also very explicit about it, yeah. right? They've, they're ex- they have when a, they come out shouting and screaming political slogans, yeah, for or instance. Br- they, they shout Britain first, oh, for instance. Yes, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the example yeah. that we know. Or they have a neo-Nazi tattoo. I mean, the symbol is, is beyond the shadow of a doubt, right? For Muslims, I've heard, I think, a counter-extremism expert once say that it's sufficient for a Muslim to even just say Allahu Akbar, right? To consider the, the political motivation beneath, behind attack, or if they're at all religious. From anyone I know who's gone through the criminal justice system for terrorism charges, they're always questioned incessantly about their faith, right? Incessantly, schedule seven arrests, incessantly 
questioned about faith. What do you believe? Which mosque do you go to? So I think we recognize, that's, that's my point that often I also, when I'm asked, this isn't a discussion, but I think I can make this no, point on the side. Important. Yeah. That people often ask me, okay, Tariq, isn't it important for us to push for more counterterrorism than towards the far right? Aren't they a threat to Muslims? And my answer is always unequivocally no, unequivocally, because my point has never been that a person who's white isn't referred to prevent or a person who's white isn't caught through counterterrorism. My point is that their bodies alone, they themselves alone will always be privileged in that system, always. Whereas a racialized Muslim with all these complicated signifiers, if they're not racialized as white, if they're practicing, whatever it might be, all gets encapsulated within this risk assessment. And I think it's something whereby um, it would only cause further damage and further issues in the Muslim community. So white people are privileged by their bodies alone in counterterrorism. To bring it then to why mental health isn't a solution. So I just want to mention that I think I recognize where that's coming from. There's an, I mentioned this word before, benevolence. Mental health has this air of benevolence. It has this air of, you know, kind of like helping and safeguarding. And we can, you know, instead of securitizing people and let's say locking them up in prisons, that's as one police, um, one, one person associated with police said, you know, isn't it better that they all just get mental health support, right? Which is kind of your argument as well by saying, well, any, all, any and all violence has, has some sort of origins associated with mental health. Now, first of all, I don't, I don't think I can agree with that on different levels. I think, first of all, as one, um, there's someone I know who, would, who used to run a youth center, and I used to work with her uh, many years ago. And she made a really important point that every point of violence, every act of violence is a form of expression. And we need to understand what is that expression, right? What is it trying to communicate as a form of language? Even if we completely disagree with it, that's, I mean, we're putting yeah, yeah. away the criminal yeah, yeah. justice element to it, you know, or whatever. Violence is a form of expression. What mental health ends up doing is that it ends up making a question of a person's psychological and emotional configuration rather than what is this person actually trying to express even if let's say they were depressed or even if they were anxious or even let's say they were really unwell and they were disassociating or whatever it might be it's important to understand that fundamentally we don't do that for very <laughs> very understood reasons historically yeah, course, I mean, i'm assuming i mean the 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 good lady i mean i'm sure she's never flouted that idea to the authorities of prevent for instance or the so, the I, home of uh, <laughs> the home secretary she actually like, ironically I mean, we were sitting with so it was me and her and a few others and we were sitting with police right <laughs> so she was saying that to the police actually she was making that point she knew that the police wouldn't understand it because ultimately our institutions, especially as we have them now, developed with a history of managing, right? So it was more about managing and controlling. One, um, well, I don't want to get academic, but I, I find this term really uh, appropriate. Um, there's a sociologist by Nicholas Rose. He calls it the anti-citizen, right? Like a lot, like a lot of psychology developed as a way of managing anti-citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, those who are antisocial, those yeah, who... The black sheep. Yes, exactly, the black sheep. And I think it was never really a question of, okay, well, how do we understand the source of violence? 
you know, it was more about how do we manage and contain it. Right, right. Um, it's and, like one of uh, someone, a senior police officer once uh, said, as we were discussing something not not too far over, not with the same, with any kind of knowledge of, of, of the, 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 the aspects that you're talking of. But he simply said, he said, listen, we're not here to ask why. We are, we are here to basically stop these people and punish them if they do anything wrong. That's that's essentially what our job is. So, so <laughs> that's so, it in a nutshell. And I've 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 had people admit that to me as well. I mean, ultimately, that's what that's what these risk-based systems. That's how they develop policing. A lot of them are all about managing in some way, shape, or form. And they they also draw upon psychiatry and other institutions to be able to manage as well, right? So they might not be able to let's say put someone in a prison, but they'll take them to a psychiatric ward for an evaluation to be able to section them, right? And it becomes a different way of managing Absolutely. them Absolutely. Um, without understanding what the source of that person's being unwell at that moment is. Um, and so I, I think- And how does someone in that circumstance, how do they prove that they're not ill? <laughs> There's there some really famous studies being done of like, um, I think there was like a heyday of critical psychologists and psychiatrists, I, th I would think about in the 60s or 70s. And one psychiatrist, he, um, he uh, I don't know if he was a psychiatrist, but he, he put, it was an academic or a scholar, he, he brought himself to a psychiatric ward and he feigned illness to be, um, you know, to be put into the yeah, psychiatric ward, to, to be admitted. And then he started acting completely normal, but and by acting normal as in going back to not feigning anything anymore. But the staff never saw him or treated him any differently. So they felt like, well, that's all part of, of his illness really, right? So, I mean, there's long histories of how I think diagnosis tends to follow us. We identify with it. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of movements here in trying to understand and unpack how sort of how, I guess, personally significant, but also politically significant mm -hmm. a mental health diagnosis can be. Mm -hmm. But I don't think, I think what we need is not one in which we rely on these institutions. I'm not saying that people who are unwell shouldn't be able to find and seek support. I think actually the inverse. So if I may say, uh, we're launching a project called Coming Home, um, and by we, I mean um, it's uh, an organization called Maslaha and another one called Lantern Initiative. And Coming Home is a project to provide a safe and secure space for anyone who experienced the violence of the criminal justice system or policing or uh, prisons uh, among Muslims to be able to find a safe and secure space to find someone to speak with, a therapist. So we want to be able to help Muslims who've been wrongly impacted or negatively impacted by these systems. I mean, and prisons alone are notoriously Islamophobic. I mean, there's a lot of blind spots we have in the community of these very acute, very concentrated areas of Islamophobia. I mean, many Muslims in prisons often admit that they self-censored, they, they're managed in terms of the, being able to practice their faith. I know terrible stories for me as a psychologist. I work exclusively with Muslims who've experienced state violence in, in some shape or form. And 
the, the stories are atrocious. But what's incredible, I think, is that what we haven't come to appreciate is we can't just tell them, oh, well, you just need mental health support. Go to the NHS and we need to make the NHS more sensitive to Muslims and more sensitive to like Muslim majority cultures. And that's the tendency. I, it's a neoliberal tendency. I'm not going to unpack that word, but it's a neoliberal tendency of just almost adding color to everything, right? But it's also an, an apolitical, a depoliticized approach because why is it that these Muslims who experience these issues with police or security or prisons, why are they not going to the NHS? Because the fundamental element of trust is, no, is not there. They don't trust these institutions. And because we as Muslims haven't recognized that, we're not providing actual safe spaces for them to be able to find someone and be like, look, you can come to me and I won't ever make a prevent referral to you, you know? And this is a sort of support that's really inherently community-based and uh, inshallah, you, you know, one that uh, I pray is, I guess, you know, I, I guess in line with what their hearts are experiencing. And I think, thinking just like, oh, we need more psychologists and psychiatrists. I mean, if they're all depoliticized exactly. in their thinking, exactly, exactly. then no one exactly. will be able to see these people, one, and two, they won't be able to help them because they won't recognize, well, what's going on? Why is it? And I, I have, I've had Muslim clients who told me that they've come to have terrible experiences with other Muslim mental health professionals. So, I mean, how do we complicate that relationship, right? We're not complicating that relationship. We certainly should be complicating it because just because you're Muslim doesn't necessarily mean you can't either enact or reenact different forms of violence um, towards other Muslims. So, so are new graduates of psychology, Muslims particularly, are they aware of this? Are they, um, do they understand what needs to happen so that they can better perform when dealing with people with issues within the Muslim community? I mean, is that the, that kind of awareness, is it growing anyway? Or is it, is it being, is it, is it encouraged or is it not? I mean, it's, it's fascinating that what, what you speak about the depoliticization of psychology, that's, that's uh, something that's quite powerful. But are people, you know, graduates academically and professionally, are they able to identify this as a, as a problem and then go about exerting this understanding in a way that is positive? I think that's really, that's a really good question. I think it's twofold depending on if they're working publicly or privately. I think publicly we have to also affirm that when we think about let's say an issue with prevent policy, there's also hostile environment, there's other policies course, that are course, explicitly racist. It doesn't belong to individuals. It actually, it's within the institutions. So it's within, it's a pressure that's, that comes upon them from, from the outside. And in my research on prevent, I recognize that most Muslims, most Muslim mental health professionals recognize their, the issues with prevent. Intuitively, they recognized it. I mean, they felt it in prevent training, et cetera. But they simply are completely, they themselves are depoliticized. So their ability to contest it or to show dissent in any way, shape or form is itself securitized. I have an example that I've written about, about a, um, a, a psychiatrist trainee, a Muslim woman, a sister. She 
she questioned why they're being trained in prevent. And the prevent trainer actually raised a complaint about her to management and that went all the way up. And the mere fact that she questioned just why it's merely for questioning. And she wasn't the only one questioning it as well. And I think it speaks volumes to how we again assume that maybe NHS is like this apolitical space. It's not, it's right? Not. You're, there's, and schools, same schools, thing with the Palestine, everything. There's very, Absolutely. there's sometimes very explicit, but often very subtle moral boundaries of what's right and wrong, what you're allowed to say, what you're not allowed to say. Um, and I think for many Muslims, um, in my experience, either they, you know, they kind of, they resist it in like my minute ways, sort of micro resistance, but, it seems to me often something I prevent is their first exposure to this of understanding that, oh, there's politics sort of in the in these settings and they're almost exclusive examples of like Islamophobia, but maybe dis the disciplines themselves have no history. Uh, certainly if they just sit down and read histories of books, especially in the um, coming from the United States and the black community and how it was managed through um, the side disciplines, but also Coming from elsewhere, if we look to Global South, um, in Palestine, you know, um, uh, a very famous psychiatrist there, Dr. Samah Jabir, she talks about how, and she's a psychiatrist, but she talks about how trauma, the word trauma is not at all appropriate in Palestine. Because even the word, and I talk about this a little bit in my book, the word trauma, the very idea of trauma has what I call a temporal dimension. So it has something about time embedded within it. And when I say the word trauma, and I would say, I'm traumatized or you're traumatized. We're saying that something happened in the past, but now I'm carrying the repercussions of that event in the past, you see? So when we're talking about someone's being traumatized through the Quebec City mosque shooting, through Christchurch, we're talking about something that's occurred in the past, right? And that's where trauma, that's, that's a, that, that the way it plays with time there, there's a political element there that's very important that Dr. Jabir is referring to because she's saying we're living in an existing state of suffocation, right? We're living in an existing state of, of, of oppression, right? So if you were being- It's not something that happened It's not ended. something that's happening. It's something that's continuously existing. So trauma, so she's saying that the only reason that they, she would use trauma is to make it, is to make the violence that's occurring to them understandable and palpable to a Western audience. And maybe because that's the only word that's available yeah. to describe the situation. Well, I mean, I think some others might disagree. Like there's people like Franz Fanon, a famous uh, Martinique uh, psychiatrist who went to North Africa um, to fight uh, the French um, Imperial Army in the 60s. And, you know, I think he would he he certainly found ways of expressing this violence in a way that didn't necessarily have to use trauma and he spoke about very real existing forms of oppression and we have this vernacular i mean we have the words anyone can point out that if someone if 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 someone is beating another person you know if i see a a, a man actively beating a child i'm not immediately thinking oh what's the word for this child is being <laughs> what's the word for this or the trauma you know we're not thinking about trauma we're immediately thinking about resolving this this existing and very real violence that's occurring so trauma has that problem and i have that problem also with with some of the experiences i've and some of the therapy uh, or clients i've had here where i i feel that trauma certainly 
they they've been told they're traumatized but their experience speaks to a constant and very existing fear that they might be taken back to prison not only here we know these type of experiences in Egypt and other places so if there's an existing fear of threat then the word is actual threat right it's not the trauma makes it about something that that person's internalized rather than oh we have an actual threat that we have to we have to understand and look at and be able to address collectively i mean part of uh, what you what you spoke about um is something that we we must come back to discuss at length because it's absolutely fascinating and that is what today we call um, you know very flippantly uh, social engineering you know whether whether it's big brother whether it's reality shows whether it's <clears throat> tv dramas developed in a way that has a real impact and shows the uh, the kind of um, of of uh, of applications of these sciences for the pleasure of the of the masses um you know the likes of crowd control for instance the how you um bring about a crowd either to revolt and to or to be subdued and to 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 be under control i mean because that is definitely when you look beyond the individual that is definitely the the next level of the application itself and and this you know it it, it really is quite scary i mean once you start thinking on that particular level we're not talking about guns anymore we're not talking about you know tear gas we're not talking we're talking about um a, a real internalization of that threat so that that person or those groups they behave in a particular way in response to the the kind of elements and fact and 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 factors that they that they're facing how how do you see this developing i mean let's let's ask a question about the future a little bit we know what the impact has been over the past particularly 20 years when we've had the war on terror we uh, have been exposed and learnt about the dozens if not hundreds of stories uh, from from children ranging from the uh, from ranging from the age of 5 all the way to adulthood schools hospitals uh playing fields we, you know we we've we've read all, all the stories we've met many of those people but where are we heading that's a really good question i mean i think there's i think there's different trajectories obviously i can chart two of them i think one what the if we look at um prevent as an example again i don't mean to focus on prevent i think islamophobia is obviously way broader than prevent but to just take it as an example in 2015 when prevent essentially tried to become a little bit more colorblind tried to focus uh refocus itself a little bit more broadly on all communities and the prevent training became colorblind so it didn't target it didn't talk about muslims anymore one of the ways it did that was through mental health so thinking about emotional vulnerability telling teachers look at who among your students are emotionally vulnerable again it's highly racialized still because the subject is still terrorism so who are they going to end up looking at right like i think that's the point but my what i'm trying to say here is that this effort to colorblind never actually addresses the inherent racism behind the strategy and to speak to then to to the trajectory shahcross and his review of prevent is precisely what many of us has have said and predicted was going to happen there's this there's this always there's 
in colorblind strategies, there's always this, this development whereby people are going to come up and say, why can't we just call it as it is, right? Let's stop making it about, you know, climate change activists and animal rights activists and all that. No, 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 no. Let's call a spade a spade, right? And was inherently with the problem with colorblindness is now, again, this counter-reaction whereby this Islam and Muslims are now being much more explicitly targeted in political discourse. And the counterterrorism um, strategy that was just released a few days ago, I think last week, I didn't read through everything, but I tried to read through some of it. And lo and behold, one of the things that they're going to be implementing that they actually mention in through prevent strategy it's something called ideology training, right? Like it's embedded within, you know, uh, the prevent, right? So this idea of really being able to focus on Islam now and Muslims. So that speaks to the trajectory is that things are actually looking much worse. And in a way, any Muslim who perhaps bought into, let's say, prevent or colorblinding prevent and making about the far right, let's push prevent, let's push for more prevent, but making more prevent being more about the far right as well. We're kind of like, we're, you know, the, the chickens are coming home to roost, right? Like this is where we're seeing that inevitably the seed of the strategy had a very particular focus. The very constructs of it, terrorism, radicalization, extremism are highly racialized. And we're seeing the fruit of that now. It's going to come back. We're going to see a wider... Um, with this, at least, we're seeing wider commonalities and parallels with France and the hyper-management of Muslim civil society, of public thought, public behaviors. We're seeing much more of that. And I think that's one of the trajectories. I think at the same time, we're seeing a wider push for mental health. Just in general, there's this idea of, you know, through austerity, yes, there has been a lot of cuts to public funding, but mental health has been widely integrated as a way of bandaging rising you know inflation you know cut poverty you know they want psychologists in all the schools and children we know in research are increasingly depressed anxious many of them coming hungry to schools right and we see how mental health can come as as a way of almost salvaging the happiness of these children without really addressing the key concerns, the key concerns. and I, i've made that also that point with regards to the, after the trauma response teams to Christchurch, to, to, to Grenfell. Grenfell had one of the largest trauma response, um, mental health trauma responses in European history. I think over a thousand, two thousand people were seen, I'm forgetting the exact number, were seen for trauma. But did anybody in Grenfell experience any justice from it, right? So mental health, they, they were given, they might've been given therapy, right? But were they given justice? Right, were the social, not social, were the physical conditions which allow Grenfell to happen, have they been addressed? We know they haven't. So I think there's, there's all these different trajectories, right? And I think some of them also have some tensions among themselves. I don't know exactly how well I'm very, <laughs> I try to contain my pessimism. I think inshallah that, um, you know, we, we, we pray for better futures sure. and we always keep up the hope. Sure. But we have to take with the causes as well. Fantastic. Jazakallah. Thank you very much. Thank you.